The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Merry Christmas, everyone, and welcome to our Christmas time episode of So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about, strangely enough, board games. And on that topic, Mark, I'm talking to my good friend, Mark Bigney, who does the show with me once in a while. Don't you, Mark? You, you know, chime in. When your, necessary. Yes. When necessary to correct, you know, when I'm, when I'm completely wrong. But on this note of Christmas, I was thinking of this great little, you know, thing that you could do with Black Angel, Mark. So you just go over to your Christmas tree and you take off like a little Santa sled ornament and you just replace it with a Black Angel. And you see that Santa, you know, racing across the sky to his first thing. And then all of the, you know, everything's trying to stop him. And the little... The little thing is is the workshop, Santa's workshop. There are little elves dropping elves, off presents exactly. to all the good boys and girls and, 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 and all the in-betweens and all the other and planets. Exactly. Santa's like launching stuff off to help his elves, but he has to, you know, stay on target. And like your little grid is his workshop where you make toys and you're like improving Okay, his what workshop. are the Reavers? What are the insectoid well, aliens are the things that are trying to stop Christmas from happening? Like, I, I don't know exactly. Uh, okay, okay. Evil elves. Clearly, clearly, this needs to be workshop, but I definitely think you're onto something. Well, yeah, something quick. You know, I you know, didn't put too much thought into it. But I was trying to think of something we could do for a Christmas-themed game. There's not many out there, but I thought this was, since it's, you know, a newer game, and I think it's a quick, a quick you know, little fix to make it a, a Christmassy-type game. You're making me regret having traded it away. Oh, well, there you go. So anyway... On this show, we talk about board games. We're going to be talking about the game that we reviewed last year, which is Too Many Bones. We're going to be talking about games we played last week, and then news and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic of the week, which is why familiarity... Nailed it. Nailed it. Why familiarity breeds contempt. So, Mark, last year at this time, we reviewed a game by Chip Theory Games, which was called Too Many Bones. But before we get into that, we have a retraction from last week. Yes, a number of listeners have pointed out that in base Catan, you can indeed trade with the bank without having established a port. When we were reviewing Catan Starfarers last week, we commented, well, I commented specifically, and Walker just nodded mutely along, as is his want, that in Catan Starfarers, you can trade with the bank from the start of the game at a 3 to 1 or 2 to 1 ratio, depending on the type of good, which makes the economy more flexible than base Catan, where you typically have to build a port to do that. And it was pointed out that prior to building a port, you can trade with the bank at a 4 to 1 ratio, but one of the reasons why that slipped my mind is number one I haven't played base Catan in a long while and number two that doesn't really undercut the the, the core thrust of, of the observation it does of course modify it somewhat and that's why we're issuing the retraction we, I'm sorry I forgot about that rule in base Catan but suffice to say that the new trading with the bank rules do offer you a great deal more flexibility than before we apologize for speaking in error all right now on to too many bones it is a cooperative sort of dice building game 
that is fantastic because you're playing these little tinkering gnomes. And not only are they all... They're definitely not gnomes. They're definitely gearlocks, which is totally different for some reason or other. I'm sorry. They're they're very cute little gearlocks. Oh, maybe this could be a Christmas game too. They're, it's very true. And not only is each one completely different, but each one also has about three different ways you can build them. So... Almost every time you play, you can get like a sort of different loadout, pick a different character, you know, emphasize a different part of that character. And you go on these very interesting missions and these decks are built, there's enemies and it's very abstract sort of combat game. And I'll play it anytime. I'll play it almost anytime with two or one because with three or four, it really starts to get very, very, very long. But that having been said... In an incredibly crowded field of the co-op, combat-heavy, tactical adventure thing, Too Many Bones remains very unique in that field, precisely because of the interesting build options and the way that it handles combat, and I'm very pleased with how the system has been developing. The encounters continue to get better and better, and they're going from strength to strength. They're going to be fulfilling a couple of new expansions before too long, and I actually just recently got... The, I think, third errata pack, they've been, Chip Theory Games have been very, very good at giving previous owners every new modification, no matter how minor. They don't tell you to print out anything from the internet. If they change a single word, they will replace the entire component for you sooner or later, which has got to be really expensive. That having been said, the fulfillment has been, I think, best characterized as a shambolic mess. What happened was... In the uh, first wave of fulfillment for this Too Many Bones Kickstarter, which included selling some pre-orders of Cloudspire, which we reviewed a few weeks ago, they were relying on a fulfillment center called Starlet Citadel. And Starlet Citadel at some point a few months ago told them, oh, by the way, we're kind of swamped. We haven't been fulfilling any of your orders for three weeks. Maybe you want to find somebody else. At which point, Ship Theater Games said, yeah, I guess we do. Why don't you send the rest of the material to somebody who's actually going to send orders out? At which point, Starlet Citadel said, sure, and then sent the wrong stuff to the new fulfiller and sent the stuff that that belonged to me, my stuff, and the stuff to other Canadians, they sent that to the United States for some passing bizarre reason. And so I thought that was going to be the, uh, the, the the last snafu, but now the people who are now responsible for redirecting the things that sat in the warehouse and then were sent to the United States, they're sending the rest of my Chip Theory Games order to Manitoba for reasons passing understanding. Same street address as mine, but different province, different city, and different postal code. So... Better luck next time, I suppose. Great game. Very good company support. They've just had very bad luck with fulfillment lately. So let, let's hope that they're able to sort that out in the near future. That being said, with the expansions, it's always more characters, which is always really good. But this is a game that is about three times as expensive as any other adventure-type game. It's the same sort of thing that, you know, you can play underwater because it's all plastic and chips and dice and no paper whatsoever, as is their M.O. But overall fantastic game and that is too many bones by chip theory games now on to the games we played this week i played a game we played a game called mechanica we did what did you think of mechanica walker mechanica is a very cute game it has very has a lot of very good things going for it. it has this you 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 use the box when you play it has this very interesting timing mechanism dial where you're putting you're actually building you're building an engine, whereas you're actually building an engine. You're building this robot making engine who's building these vacuum bots that, of course, will not take over the world. And they're actual puzzle pieces that you fit onto your little grid and they lock together and you follow this little conveyor belt of 
crappy bots turning into better bots and then multiplying again or being crushed down or, you know, you're trying to build this thing so at the end you're getting maximum output of these robots so you can fulfill these orders. And it has this cool, uh, where you buy the mechanisms, this dial that spins around. If nothing's bought, it gets dumped down into the recycler and... Literally, you, you spin a dial and the piece, instead of you removing it and sliding everything down, you rotate a dial and the piece literally falls into a hole. It's great. Yeah, and the, you know, the adorable artwork. It has a little bit of problem with the end game that we saw, but we did. A little bit. Jeez. We did, a, we did play incorrectly, but other than that, because we did a rotating uh, start uh, first player, but the first player is supposed to stay at the same place. That might have solved a little bit of the issues that we had. Nope. No, no, nope. But I think. Well, let, 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 let's be detailed. Here's the problem there's a strict phase order, and one of the parts of your turn is the part where you actually score by getting bots to the end of the, the conveyor line, and you score based on either just a flat rate or you can complete missions based on selling particular kinds of bots. And it's part of your turn. And if somebody exhausts the market, which is something over which you have a certain degree of control, then the game ends immediately. It doesn't end it at the end of the round. You don't play equal turns. So if I'm player one and I empty the market, or if I'm player two, everyone downstream from me does not score at all this round, which is complete and total nonsense. The extent to which it's nonsense, however, is directly proportionate to the ease with which you can fix that. Namely, just let everyone sell what they've got on their... On, 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 on their bots. I just have no idea why they would have done that way. We checked the rule book several times, and that's not the part we got wrong. It's, it says the, the round, the game ends immediately, thereby bypassing everyone else's scoring. I have no idea why they did that way. And in the game we played, it was a 20-point swing. It, just such grotesque stupidity. I do not understand why it worked that way. I have to assume that there's something else we're missing. Yeah, we'll play it again. I think I want to play it again because I think they did a great job. Like the a lot of the engine pieces, a lot of times in these games, you can get like infinite loops or silly machines that do too much. But I think they did a great job of balancing everything and making uh, every every piece interesting and doing something you know cool. It's not like this is you know the cruddy piece that nobody wants or or this is the amazing piece that you have to get before anybody else or else you know you're going to lose. I think they're all very unique and all very useful. I would gladly play again with the proviso that we play equal turns. And usually I'm not the one who objects to things like this. You know, in Tigers and Euphrates, whether you play equal turns or not, I don't really care. But this is really a question of bypassing everyone's scoring capability for a given round. It's ridiculous. So I would insist on playing equal turns. And furthermore, I I mean, I have some misgivings about the way the tile supply works. Because in the game that we played in the first couple of rounds, the tiles that were coming up were not useful at the beginning of the game. And so you had to either take the hit and buy something hoping it would be useful later or just sit around waiting for the tiles that say produce extra robots or do something with basic robots rather than a whole bunch of tiles that manipulate advanced robots, which you don't have access to. This is one of those occasions where I think... Graduated. Yeah, you see, here's the thing. 99% of the time when you're moaning about something needing graduating decks, I roll my eyes and think you're exaggerating. But here I really do think that it would have would have benefited from at least a, a few tiles starting out at the beginning. Well, this is going to come up again, so... I, I know, and you're. I think you're going to be wrong when you bring it up again, but this time you're right. So even a stop clock can be right twice a day. And generally speaking, the strategic horizons are relatively low because the, the tile supply is relatively small and you don't really have a whole lot of chance to look ahead. But as you say, it's really cute. The components are a joy. The theming is very, very funny. And so I'm, I'm perfectly willing to play a quick, simple tile layer 
but I, I really don't think that it, it does a whole lot other than exploit its marvelous components and its adorable theme. Agreed. The designer is Mary Flanagan and M- Emma Hobday and Max Stedman, and it's a put out by Resum Games. Resonim, I think Res- it is. Resonim. So anyway. Resonim that, Games. And that was Mechanica. Mechanica. I got to try a beta version of One Deck Galaxy. This was put up by my friend Chris Cheslick at Asmati Games, and this is the spiritual successor to One Deck Dungeon, which is a very, very good solo-slash-two-player co-op dice game. One Deck Galaxy is the sci-fi version of it, and as longtime listeners may know, I am a sucker for anything sci-fi. It is very similar to One Deck Dungeon, but it is somewhat elaborated. Instead of having a simple class, you now have a race and a certain attribute of that race. It's kind of paying homage to some 4X tropes you develop technologies rather than, you know, the standard dungeon equivalents, but it is nonetheless very similar, and I like the core system of One Deck Dungeon. However, they've changed things to an extent that the first play wasn't entirely smooth. One of the benefits of One Deck Dungeon is how incredibly smooth and quick playing it is, and my playing of One Deck Galaxy was just a little bit slower by virtue of my having to grapple with the system. It was a little bit more intricate, and I had to unlearn some of the things that I had learned. So I'm looking forward to seeing where the beta goes. So far, it's looking very strong like the other developments, but it's early times yet. This has been offered under a program that Asmati Games does a number of for a number of its releases, whereby you pay for an early beta version, kind of participate in, in a, a, a closed beta, but then you get a free copy of the game when it comes out later. Oh, nice. Which is very, very nice. It's, it's kind of like the equivalent of getting early access, but not having to deal with an incredibly buggy mess. And as it is now, it's, in, it's eminently playable. So, I'm looking for, as I say, I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops, and it is always very nice to expand my repertoire of very, very quick, accessible, simple, low-overhead solitaire games, and that was my early experience with One Deck Galaxy. Nice. Mark and I got to play a game called It's a Wonderful World. It's out by Lucky Duck Games, and the designer is Frederick Garrard. And it's a deck drafting game. You're passing around seven cards. You're going to be drafting seven cards, and then you're going to be using these cards to either get instant resources or building your engine that will get you more resources, which will get you more cards which will get you more resources and or victory point scoring engines. What is really interesting about this particular game is that when you collect these resources, they're in a set order. So if you need, say, in, in the last turn of the game, because let's just use an exact example. The last turn of the game, I need like 14 blue or something ridiculous like this. How, how am, and I'm only generating seven. How am I possibly going to get to 14 blue? Well, blue is the last resource that is that is generated so you can sort of plan ahead say well this this card that i drafted gives me three blue and the resources i need to get it out are before blue so i can you know get those resources get this out so that by the time blue hits then i'm generating the blue that i need and it's that sort of planning ahead that i really love you can because it's only four turns so you can sort of almost plan out the whole game and you know get you know get a good strategy going because there seems to be quite a few different avenues to pursue there's like you know collecting particular leaders collecting particular buildings there seems to be all sorts of different ways you can go that will make the game different every time this was recommended to us several months ago by a listener who was participating in some of the play tests and we've been complaining rather a lot about how number one a lot of drafting games don't offer you anything more than fairy tales so why bother playing anything other than fairy tale and number two how a lot of tableau builders can get overwrought and unnecessarily complicated 
And really, It's a Wonderful World seems to address both of these concerns immediately. The throughput considerations in a very, very simple rule set are surprisingly intricate. You have all these buildings out that you need to construct, and some of them rest on resources that you don't currently produce. Your economy doesn't produce them organically. So what you need to do, ideally, is draft a card that will either produce those resources and build that, ideally earlier on in the turn structure, or... Draft a card that will give it to you if you just junk it for its research bonus. Uh, its recycle bonus, rather. And so you have all these different competing concerns about what to draft and when and how and how to pivot your economy and how to compensate for what your economy doesn't produce. And all the while, even in the first game, looking at what your neighbors are doing and not try- trying to not feed them cards they want. On top of the fact that there's direct competition because every time you produce more resources than all of your opponents, you get a bonus point, which could indeed be worth more than one point based on your- how your economy shakes out. It's quick. It's immediately accessible. It does tableau building and drafting in many ways better than a lot of other heavier games that have been released in the past few years. I was thoroughly impressed with our first playing of It's a a Wonderful World. It's one of those things where the rules are so incredibly simple, but right away in the first turn, you're looking down at your cards thinking, oh, oh, so this is how this game works. I'm an idiot. And I definitely had that experience over and over in It's a Wonderful World. So I'm very much looking forward to trying to get a little bit more mastery of the system, trying to be able to see a little bit more of those throughput concerns, because it's not obtuse. It's just flexible, and it gives you a lot of opportunity to make use of your cards and your drafting choices in a lot of clever ways. So I was thoroughly, thoroughly pleased. The only thing I'm worried about is once you get to know all of the cards and all the different avenues of strategy, you'll be able to, you know, look up from your your own solo experience and see what your opponents are doing, because I didn't even bother looking at what was going oh, on really? left or right. And then seeing what they need and just drafting those cards instead. It's like, okay, because when I was drafting resources, it's like, okay, I need, you know, I need some green this turn. And I hadn't, I'd never looked at the bottom. It's like, okay, this gives me, these three give me green. I'll just take this one. Whereas I could have looked overhead and said, oh, he needs that particular card. I'll just draft this one that gives me green and therefore denying him, you know, his resource. So I'm wondering if there'll be too much lockout that way. It's like, okay, well, there's these definite avenues of strategy or avenues of victory. And then you can just lock people out and it might not make it as fun. So your concern might be that there might be too many avenues for hate drafting. Exactly. I see. Well, that's definitely something to keep an eye open. But if so, that would definitely be preferable to a lot of other drafting games where there's no possibility of hate drafting at all. So between those two, I think I would rather there be too much player interaction rather than not enough. Agreed. And that was It's a Wonderful World. Got to play Yggdrasil Chronicles again. This is just a follow-up from last week. Yggdrasil Chronicles being the co-op game about Ragnarok. And as I've said before, any game about Ragnarok I will play. Full disclosure, I played the first game I played solo, and when playing multiplayer, I played with two other players this time, you do get to play a little bit more with the activation sequence, who activates when and what is of consequence, because it influences when and what baddies will activate, and that part was cool. Also, I got a chance to test my theory that the tree was going to be more functional than a lot of naysayers have point, have, have speculated, because we had three players sitting in a circle around the tree, and we were all able to access all areas of the tree simultaneously, even in relatively poor lighting. So, Also, this being said, I, I, I just got to watch this game. I didn't get to play it, and the Everdale tree ain't got nothing on this tree. Yeah, it's more functional. And it's more appealing, still mostly just a gimmick. There's this whole issue of you, sometimes you rotate the middle 
area of the tree and change the movement options slightly. But honestly, but there's cards that stick out of the middle. That is cool. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And there's like a cage on the top. And no, oh, it's Mark, very are, cool. It's very cool. It's just... telling this tree is amazing. <laughs> it's very, very cool, but it's mostly just a gimmick. Yes, there are, there are card holders built into the tree. So on the middle level of the tree, there are these three decks that are inserted into the tree. It's very, very neat. It's nice. It's easy to assemble once you've done all the, the initial punching. All that, all that stuff is great. However, two serious problems I have with Ignisal Chronicles from a gameplay perspective. Number one, we commented in the context of Last Bastion that although it's very, very pleasant and fun, you do get into sort of a repetitive situation where it's always just, I'm either smacking something in the face or doing something to set somebody up to smack someone in the face. That is exactly what you're doing in Ignisal Chronicles precisely. You're just playing whack-a-mole, waiting to run out the clock. Last Bastion at least had the benefit of a more satisfying endgame because you run out of the clock for the boss to show up and then you have to kill the boss and that's how you win. Ages of Chronicles, as I commented, you're just trying to run out of clock and that's not particularly satisfying and it did fall into the same sort of repetitive rhythm that Last Bastion kind of did but without being necessarily clean or having a satisfying ending as Last Bastion did. Furthermore, as the game goes on, your options narrow rather than expand. You have the most freedom at the beginning of the game. And later on, as things get destroyed, your available actions winnow down. I don't really like that as an arc. So in terms of the overall arc of the game, I think it's got some problems. And number two, and this is just an obvious problem, it has skip a turn mechanics, which is just bad. Why do people do this? Now, you skip a turn when Fenrir activates, and yes, that's perfectly thematically appropriate. When Fenrir is out in Asgard ravaging around, yes, of course you're going to be busy. And you get the added thematic bonus that one of Tyr's special powers is he is not vulnerable to skipping a turn as a result of Fenrir, which is great. That's wonderful. I love me some Tyr. I love me some Fenrir thematicity. But uh, it's just, no, no, no skipping turns. I'm done with skipping turns. So I think it's fun. It's diverting. I'd play it again probably if somebody asked for it, but it's not top tier. It's got some serious problems. It's a joy to look at, and it's a joy to manipulate the components and all the little meeples that slot in in the right place and a little stack of fire giants that represent Surtur getting stronger. Anyway, I could go on and on about the theming and the components because they're really good, but there are some gameplay problems, and there are so many thoroughly excellent co-ops. I don't think that Yggdrasil Chronicles is necessarily something that I could recommend unless you are super enthusiastic about the theme. I got to play Yokohama. I keep talking about Yokohama, but this is finally the third time I've got to play it. Fantastic game. I, you know, I, when I play, it's like, you can, you can say that it's a heavier Euro. There's a lot going on. And it's one of those games where you sort of, the first few times you play it, I'm going to concentrate on this part. I'm going to fulfill orders. I'm going to get goods. You know, this, this game, I'm going to do this. This was a game where I finally just, you know, branched out and did everything, right? I'm getting secret agents. I'm, I'm, I'm sending people to the church. I'm, you know, cashing stuff in. And it really opened up the game where you got these combos going off with the secret agents and, and doing all sorts of extra stuff. And I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it every time I play. And that's Yokohama by Tasty Minstrel Games. I have a uh, somewhat embarrassing confession to make. Oh my. I played something, and I uh, I, I rather enjoyed it. Uh-oh. It's called Cthulhu Death May Die. Oh, die, 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 death, death again? Yeah. Here's the thing, though. Here, okay, here's the thing about Cthulhu Death May Die. We made fun of this when it was first on Kickstarter. And I, and I was skeptical because I think Eric Lang's output is usually good, but not exceptionally consistent. And also, ever since he took the job at Simon, it's tough to tell what he's actually got his hands in. And it's also co-designed with Rob Davio. And Rob Davio's output, I think, is generally uh, uneven at best. What really turned me off the game was its theme. 
There's been a million Cthulhu games, and I'm sick to death of the Cthulhu mythos being represented as some sort of pulp thing where you wander up with a shotgun and, and blow away Yogg-Sothoth. Here's the thing, though. I can't tell if it's deliberate, but it, it really appears to be the case that the people involved in Cthulhu Death May Die agree with me that that is a stupid theme for a game. I don't know if this game is kind of sort of almost backdoor satire, but it's verging on it. The way all the heroes, the heroes, all the player characters are represented is that these are nut bars, not in the sense that they've been corrupted by strange eldritch energies and they've lost their connection with the material realm, but they're just crazy people that are doing something stupid. And so it gets this sort of weird expendables vibe or like Legion Etrangère where it's like we've already declared you dead and these idiots doing dumb stuff and viewed in that lens you really get into a sort of cool pulpy vibe with what's going on in Cthulhu Death May Die you're you go in you have to disrupt a ritual which is dependent on what scenario you're playing and there are six different scenarios in the the base box and then the great old one shows up and there's a whole bunch of different great old ones so it's 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 very modular you pick a scenario there are more available and more boxes, of course, and you pick a great old one, and there are more available and more boxes, and so you get this unique combination of old one and scenario, and the scenario tells you how to make the old one vulnerable, and then you go kill the old one. And again, the rules seem to recognize that going and killing an old one is just weird and stupid. So if you lean into it in that perspective, the theming actually, I thought, was kind of cool. It was it was kind of fun to, to, to recognize that. And furthermore, just as a note, and you'll appreciate this, Walker, Cthulhu Death May Die is not the second or third or fourth or fifth coming of something like Arkham Horror or Eldritch Horror. Cthulhu Death May Die really, really feels like the Others version, too. I really got a strong The Others Seven Sins vibe from what's going on. There's this whole notion of becoming crazier and dancing with corruption so as to become more efficient. There's this whole notion of trading off stress points to become more efficient in that resetting. There's this notion of putting out fires, and they do it much, much better in Death May Die than they did in The Others. That's one of the things I didn't like in The Others. It was a million reasons not to go anywhere because all this stuff was getting in your way and preventing movement. Anyhow, I have to say that as far as a uh, minis-heavy cooperative experience goes, Cthulhu Death May Die is very solid. It was very engaging, quick to set up, quick to play, very simple, lots of options to do. I didn't really feel like I was wasting actions or I was ever hamstrung. Lots of things to discover. In the base game, you're going to have six different scenarios that are all very, very, very different. They all have their own decks and different stuff to encounter. And so I was very pleased with how it was set up. The modularity appealed to me, the way the theme was presented appealed to me, and the fundamental mechanics were unobjectionable. It's another dice pool builder, though, was it not? Yeah, basically. Okay. But... But here's the thing, though. As your pool gets bigger, you get crazier and crazier as time goes on. So you start off just chucking three dice to do something, and, and several of the dice sides say you're, you're starting to get more crazy. As you get more crazy, and as you pick up more bonuses, though, you're rolling more dice, which in turn generates more insanity. And so there's this really, this really sense of, of, of ramp up happens quite organically, but it's a ramp up where it's like, do I really want to do this thing? And so the actions don't become trivial. It's not a question of, well, I guess I'll just go stomp on this monster because there's nothing better, better for me to do. No, you have to be very careful about this and you can do other things. So I, I was not expecting to enjoy Cthulhu Death May Die. And I thought that it was very diverting. So take that for what it's worth, and I would definitely be down to try more scenarios and more great old ones in Death May Die. I'm not going to run out and get the Kickstarter exclusive version with 70 billion scenarios and so forth, but the variety is already pleasant to me, and so that is my shameful admission. 
Finally, the expansion to Pax Arcana was released recently, and it's called Lux et Tenebrae. For those that are not quite as uh, linguistically sophisticated as we are, Lux et Tenebrae is Latin for Lux and Tenebrae. You're welcome. And it has more of everything. It's got more mages, it's got more items, it's got more places of power, it's got more of everything. And Pax Arcana, for those who don't remember, is Thomas Lehman once again demonstrating that he's the master of tableau building, getting more mileage out of a tiny eight-card deck than you could ever possibly imagine. At the start of Pax Arcana, you just have eight cards, and that is it. And you're told to go out and make your way in the world. So it's a different kind of approach than It's a Wonderful World, which has a massive stack of cards, and you're drafting a subset of that. In uh, Pax Arcana, you can... Uh, sorry, in Res Arcana, this is not a... This is not... <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering. You started with Pax Arcana right yeah, from the beginning. Yeah. No, that's just a. This is the error in my notes. This is not <laughs> an Eklund game, uh, <laughs> in which he has uh, bizarre conspira- conspiratorial and/or vaguely dodgy theories about what alchemists were up to in the 16th century. Although that would be an interesting account that he would have. <laughs> It's like they were early free marketeers and should have been yes. left to transmute their iron into gold yes. alone, uh, away from government regulation. His, uh, his alternate history. Edition. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Anyway, Res Arcana. <laughs> Woo! It's a sad day for the professionalism of Silver Wrong About Games, Walker. Thank you for catching me on that one. In Res Arcana, you can, you can draft your initial eight cards, but really, you've got your eight cards and that's it. And as a result, it's very, very amenable to just more stuff. If you have even one of the new expansion cards in your eight card deck, things feel entirely different. And so sure enough, it was a great opportunity to just mix everything up and have a little bit of different tenor to what's going on in Res Arcana. And there are some, some people who play it far more seriously than I do have sort of scripted openings based on which places of power are available. And so I'm glad for anything to, to shake things up a little bit. I don't, I don't play games that way. I don't have scripted openings. Uh, definitely not canned strategies for things, something like that. But again, if you're looking for a light tableau builder that gets away, gets, gets rid of a lot of the cruft, Walker doesn't like Res Arcana, but he's wrong about that. It's very, very good. And I was glad to see it getting more attention because despite the fact that it's really solid and enjoyable, it's kind of forgettable in the sense that it's really small and really quick. And it's easy to forget that Thomas Lehman has designed tons of excellent tableau builders. And so one more sometimes is difficult to wrap your head around. But Lux at Tenebrae is a solid expansion to a very good game, and I was glad to put it through its paces, and that was pa- Res Arcana Lux at Tenebrae. I almost did it again. You almost got it I again. I almost did it again. And those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Small schedule update for So Very Wrong About Games. We've been seeing, really over the course of the past month, the best of 2019 and the best of the 2010s and so forth lists. We are going to be doing this. We we are we are going to do well, our year-end special. It's true. Well, just only because people don't understand in Canada, much like in China, we don't have our New Year's on January 1st like everybody else does in Canada. It's February 14th. No, that is not true. That is not true. Walker is a liar. We are going to be taking our time with it, though. We considered doing it this week, but the thing is, over the course of the past week, literally in the past week, at least half a dozen games have become available to us Canadians that might plausibly be in one or both of our top tens. And so it would be somewhat irresponsible for us right now to be doing a top ten list with massive provisos saying, well, there's all these things. So... (laughs) We are going to be trying to put a few more games through their paces. We're not going to delay. We're probably not going to delay until February. Sometime in January, early January, we'll have our year-end special. Wait for it. It's going to be amazing. I'm just going to talk about briefly, talk about games that we haven't got yet, Mark. We still have not seen Reavers of Midgard, which is on many top 10 
2019 lists, and it's a game we haven't been able to play because of Game Terrain's TM uh, caused a problem with their shipping out of. Apparently, this has been apparently this has been fixed, and uh, games are on their way. And uh, we'll see what happens if we get it uh, in the next couple of weeks. We can hope. This is just yet another instance of Americans having something months before we do. So, And another instance of deluxified components slowing down delivery like we talked about before. It's true. It's a big deal. And that's the news and why it matters because we don't get our games in Canada. It's unfair. Now onto our topic. Why familiarity breeds contempt. So Walker initially pitched this idea of the process of mastering a game sometimes leading not to greater mastery, but just you realizing that a game is fundamentally flawed to begin with. And hence the title, Familiarity Breeds Contempt. So, Walker, what what are your thoughts on this issue? Well, I've got a couple of bullet points here. I guess I'll just blurt them out and we can talk about them. Okay, thank you for recapitulating what was essentially the setup anyway. Well, you know. Well, this is, like I said, we've talked about uh, mastering a game before, and this is just more like playing a game over and over again, attempting to master or having it as your group game. What problems can can that lead to? We talked about just uh, overall problems, but actual game mechanic problems yep. or, or stuff like that is what I wanted to talk about. So let's start off as this is I have under Get Hipster. It is um, not want to let new players join your group. It's like you've played this game multiple times with this group. Letting a new player in is kind of pointless because they'll, you know, throw the dynamic of the game off because they don't know what they're doing. You don't even want to bother explaining the rules to somebody because everyone in the, everyone else in the group already knows how to play. It has been a whole five minutes since, since we've bashed Puerto Rico. It's true. It's so true. We do need to circle back to that. And also in that same category is you ex- you expect certain ways of play you expect people to play a certain way to adapt certain strategies to do certain things and you shouldn't you shouldn't you know if people want to play a certain a different way or you know you know mold it or do things a different way then they should be open to do that well a related issue i think you raised this in the context of yokohama actually Sometimes you play a game for the first time and you wonder, oh, look, there's all these different things you can do. But the open question is, even if you're very experienced with games and you, you, you're you pretty good at making initial judgments, is there a lot of stuff you can do or is it just superficial? Are there a plurality of strategies? And you've been saying that your further experience with Yokohama have really emphasized that there's just a lot of different ways you can interface with the game in a productive way. And I was thinking of, uh, I've been thinking of this in terms of contrasts, you know, games that allow for greater mastery, games that reward additional experience and really further plays showing you its depth and its quality versus other ga- games where you pl- the more you play it, the more you realize that there's not much there. For, for me, the sort of paradigmatic comparison here is on the one hand, you have a Feast for Odin where there's a lots of different things you can do, lots of different viable paths. It's a beautiful little sandbox versus something like Tapestry where it looks like there's all these different kinds of things you can do. But really at the end of the game, at the end of the day, it's, you're going to be scoring three times four somewhere or another, whether it's three times four techs or three times four territories you've conquered or three times four whatever based on what track you've gone on but it's all the same at the end of the day you're gonna be on the end of this track or the end of that track precisely and so there's a difference between there being a plurality of things you can do and a plurality of actual different strategies and different game experiences different options yeah i have that 
like does the is the game too light to hold up to multiple plays like that so that leads into that point like is this you know you've decided decided you know we're going to play this game a lot and then you after a bunch of plays you realize it's just too light it doesn't hold your interest or it's just there's not enough there could, could you give me an example because i can think of a lot of light games that i've played dozens and dozens and dozens of times like cockroach poker and skull we've played dozens of times we've played coyote many many times and they're super light true no and but but like to make it a mastery game, to like to make it a game that you want to get good at, like sure they are very fun, but to a game to lose yourself into, to sit there and and like we talked about, a game that you want to talk about after it's over, or think of new strategies, or something that you you realize the mistake that you made, something that's deep enough like that, and you've decided to try this game, and it just it it was too late to give you that feeling. I see. Some games are light and they produce roughly the same experience every time and that's okay. Other games are light and you're hoping, they were hoping that there was a little bit more to it and maybe a little bit more varied and it is frustrating when that doesn't manifest. Exactly. Understood. One of the things that I often think of in terms of whether or not a game will reward mastery is how much luck is there going to be in the game. And again, this can be often deceptive. Some I, I see lots of people dismissing some games as being too influenced by luck on their first play when someone else at the table might have played the game dozens of times and can tell you, no, 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 the same player is going to win 90 to 95% of the time if they are the best player at the table. And for me, the classic example of this is Raw. The classic Reiner Canizia auction game Raw is dismissed by many as being too dependent on luck because, yes, you're pulling random tiles out of the bag, but an experienced player will know the overall tempo of the game and will know when to push, know when to pull back, know when to take the risks, know when to do those kinds of things. Uh, similarly, Tigers and Euphrates. Know when to hold them. Know when to no, hold them. Know when to walk away. Know when to fold them. Gotcha. Know when to walk away. Know when to smoke a big fat joint. I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, is that how the song goes? Yeah, I think so. Okay, okay good. Uh, another example of this is Tigers and Euphrates. I know a lot of people who dismiss Tigers and Euphrates is whoever draws the most red tiles wins. And yes, drawing red tiles gives you some flexibility sometimes, but... If experienced players know that it's about managing this influx, and so you can see that the role of luck, although superficially very prominent, is when you've mastered the game, when you've played it a number of times, it really recedes. Compare this, on the other hand, other games that that kind of mask the randomness. One of them is Seven Wonders. Seven Wonders, you're making a lot of your decisions front-loaded at the beginning of the game, and you don't know how the card distribution is going to hose you later on, and I find people really underestimate the effect of the luck in Seven Wonders. Uh, similarly, Secret Hitler. The, 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 the more I play Secret Hitler, and I'm, I'm made to play Secret Hitler because it's the most popular social deduction game in our area, and a lot of people strongly dislike the Resistance because they hate fun and want me to suffer as well with them. But in Secret Hitler, as in any secret uh, hidden deduction game, the bad guys have to pick their spots and they have to rest on certain inflection points. And when the random deck draw says you can't act on the random inflection point when it happens to be your turn, well, then you're not playing a game that the game is playing you. And I've seen more games swung on Secret Hitler based on random draws than, you, than you'd believe. And so it initially seems like a mild influence and a mild way to spice things up. I think it really serves as a barrier to more quality play. And that is, those are the kinds of things that sometimes you only notice after playing a game many, many times. Agreed. Sometimes you get caught in a rut playing the same strategy every time in these games. So we've talked about that many a times. You've talked about that in... Well, I've talked about it even in the context of Too Many Bones. In the miniature game... uh, Infinity? Infinity. You know, you use the same strategy over and over again. So if you, you know, if you tend to do well or it's something that, you know, you know, usually works or, you know, you can rely on it or, you know. It's or dovetails you know. with your natural instincts exactly. and personality. 
Exactly. And that's so that's something that will come up if you try if you play the same game too many times. In the context of Infinity, one of the reasons why I don't play nearly as much Infinity as I did a few years ago, I've commented on this before, is because I start caring about my win-loss record. This is this is a thing about me. I don't like playing in highly competitive environments. I've commented on that before. I don't like myself when I start feeling competitive. And when people around me start talking about win-loss records a whole lot, and, and or if I start to care about win-loss records, then I start enjoying games less. Sometimes that's okay. We played a couple Shadespire tournaments a few years ago, and that was all right. That was kind of on the knife edge for me. But in the context of Infinity, the last time I played Infinity seriously was in a very competitive environment in Toronto, and people were always talking about how, well, you know, you beat me this time, and I beat you this other time, and it just turned me off the game more or less entirely. I've still played it a number of times over the past few years, but I have to be very, very careful about things. And so that's one of the reasons why I don't like focus on things like mastery if it leads to a, a, a hyper-competitive well, that's, environment. That's a point I have almost at the end. It leads to being too competitive, right? Because you have so much time invested in this game. There's these strategies you've wanted to try and maybe someone's getting in your way or they're taking over your strategy or whatever. And it just sometimes just tends to be too competitive. Absolutely. Other problems is that you can find loopholes in the rules or bad combinations with certain cards or overpowered cards that you didn't think were, you know, so bad at, the, you know, at the beginning, they become ridiculous when used with other things or, or, uh, asymmetrical powers or races, you know, the balance, you know, Terra Mystica, you know, the balance is off. You have to, you know, revamp the rules in order to, you know, make this game that people enjoy mastering and have tournaments with. You have to play around with this stuff and it's nice when you don't have to do that. Yeah, the asymmetric variety can be uh, seemingly an open door for repeated plays and the the concomitant attempt to master it, but sometimes it doesn't work out well. Sometimes it turns out that there's only one dominant play. So the example of this is a few acres of snow. There's a lot of different ways to approach the game, and it looks a little sandboxy, but in reality, there's this one strategy that, although not necessarily dominant, is very, very simple and easy to apply, and so the game ends up feeling very much like you're on rails. Uh, contrast that with something like Root, which, uh, now granted, this is partially because of the constant intervention of a very, very conscientious designer with balance fixes, but you have genuine asymmetry there without any serious sort of structural imbalances. And then, of course, there are co- there are cooperative games where there's enough asymmetric variety. You don't really care about the balance too, too much. I'm thinking things like Street Masters, things like Too Many Bones, things like those. The point of here is getting too familiar with the systems and able to shut down opponents and they cease to have fun, which I just talked about when we were talking about the other game, uh, the, where is it? The, when I was talking about It's a Wonderful World, right? So you get so familiar with the game that you're pretty well running your own tableau or your own area on autopilot and lets you focus more on what the other people are doing and then completely shutting them down and stopping their strategies. And therefore, they're not having fun anymore. So my concern actually is uh, with new games is often the opposite. I sometimes play a, play a game for the first time. And I remark, well, there wasn't a whole lot of player interaction there. Maybe more experience with the system will lead to more quality player interaction. And sometimes this indeed manifests. Two examples off the top of my head are Cthulhu Wars and Scythe. It's very easy to play conservatively in both those games and not have any conflicts. Or not have many conflicts. Cthulhu Wars, you're going to have some. It's, it's, it's pretty much impossible not to fight at all. But 
they are flexible enough and they, the games are amenable enough for more experienced and or more aggressive players to have more conflict and therefore more player interaction and the game will still function and people will still have fun. Compare that with other games where the player interaction is really shoehorned in and tacked on and isn't really quality to begin with. Allow me to talk about one of our least favorite games we've ever reviewed, Alien Artifacts, where the combat system was just not satisfying, and it really seemed to be introduced just to solve a problem ex post facto. So sometimes I wonder, upon playing a game once or twice, is it worth getting deeper into the system, because is it going to show more player interaction, or is it just going to show that the system cannot accommodate player interaction to begin with? Agreed. Sometimes it can make you resist a new edition, right? Say the game comes out with an expansion or a brand new edition, but you've already, like we said, mastered or you're used to this one edition and make, might make you resistant to try this new stuff or incorporate it into your group. Or even the question of whether a new kind of spin-off or spiritual successor is worthy on its own, right? I talk a lot about how I find Age of Industry very interesting when compared to Brass. I think that Age of Industry is a superior game. I think it's more accessible, more flexible, uh, just generally a, a better product. Compare that with other spiritual successors, which sometimes don't work nearly as well. An older example is 1960 Making of a President, which I think took all a lot of the good things that made Twilight Struggle work and just ejected them, so you end up with a much less interesting, much less dynamic experience. Or more recently, one of my worst gaming experiences of 2019, although this might be a spoiler for our end-of-year episode, Ancient Civilization of the Inner Sea, which is really like someone took classic civilization and beat it a couple times with the ugly stick, not understanding how the game worked. And you end up with this monster that is clearly a derivative of, but not understanding why it was successful in the first place. And another example I think actually proves this is uh, Tigris and Euphrates and Yellow and Yancey, right? Because we are so fond of Tigris and Euphrates, I think we've sort of dismissed Yellow and Yancey and a little too much, because this is something I forgot to talk about in the news, was the fact that Yellow and Yancey just got a digital edition. I've been playing quite a bit of it this week, and there is a lot more there than I first expected. Yeah, no, well, first realized. when we reviewed it, and as we commented in the Aurus, it is a quality game. And it is a worthy game in its own right. The problem is it is still sufficiently similar to a game that is, in my opinion, the greatest game ever made. And it is merely in comparison that it suffers. No, I, I, I dismissive I don't think is quite the right word. It's just the opportunity cost always seems a little too high for pulling out Yellow and Yanksy as opposed to Tigers and Euphrates. If you think that's a dismissal, then so be it. And my last point is that you might unintentionally be be forcing others to play this game because you might be so enthralled with it or, you know, uh, taken up with it, dedicated to it that you're, you know, forcing it on others unknowing, like not, you know, because you're just so you know enamored with it. One of the things that I like about mastering a game or at least getting to, to some level of mastery, because I don't think I'm a master of anything really, is sometimes a game appears to be interesting, but possibly a little bit on rails. And so then there's an open question. How flexible is the system in point of fact? Is this just a question of, of overcoming the initial barrier? And an example of two very different games that I think one is successful and one is not successful at overcoming the sense of, of being on rails. On the one hand, again, there's classic civilization, which is very process heavy. And a lot of new players think, well, I don't really have a whole lot of ability to upset the meta or seriously change the development of what's happening. The game seems to run on a little bit of autopilot. 
but in reality, it, it's it's quite the opposite. The same is true, I think, of Cosmic Encounter. A lot of people think that Cosmic Encounter kind of runs on autopilot, but after you've played the game a couple of times, you really see uh, those inflection points where it's entirely within your control to really upend what's going on. On the other hand, I was very enthusiastic about John Company, another design by Cole Worley, and John Company remains a fascinating design, and I'm still willing to play it, but the more I play it, the more it really seems like the game plays itself. It's just the, the 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 procedures just take over and there's this sort of automatic nature to things and the opportunities to cut interesting deals or to really upset the meta don't really manifest in a way that I'd like. And so I, you know, I look at the parallel experience of coming to appreciate these games more on subsequent playings and one of them has revealed itself to be more open than it looked and one of them is revealed to be more closed. Oh, I looked. think it suffers from the Puerto Rico syndrome where there's just obvious choices, right? When they come up, it's like, well, it's obvious I want to buy this right now and so then, the, then you do that and then the game takes you along to the next step. Right, but sometimes a game gives you that impression on first or second playing and it's just, a, it takes expert player experience to be able to take a step back and realize, no, 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 I'm completely in control. I could go off and do this other thing entirely or what have you. And that that is one of those reasons why some games lend themselves to mastery and some don't, right? So John Company for me is more of an experience game. I play it for the experience of things happening and I still have fun. Whereas for me, Civilization is a game that if I were inclined to master something, rather than just being the hopelessly shallow dilettante that I am and always have been, uh, Civilization has additional levers to pull, additional depths to explore. If you try, attempt to master a game, you might wear out your copy. It might get worn, and you'd have to buy another copy. That's terrible. <laughs> is this is this a, is this a backdoor attempt to proselytize for the Church of Sleeves? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I had to. Uh, I had to. I had to go and buy sleeves because I was putting in my inserts for Sacker Arms, which again is another game that's very amenable to. Revealing new depths as you play and getting mastery. You know, there's an active tournament scene in Japan. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the Season 5 stuff being fully released in translated inserts. But I, I'm willing to be patient. So I had to, after cutting everything out, I needed to put everything in the little sleeves. And I just, oh, sleeves, man. You love them. I know, I really don't. I really, really dislike sleeves. But that's, that's just a personal preference. Some people like sleeves. Some people dislike sleeves. There's nothing to be said about that. The only part where I get genuinely upset is where people start making false claims about sleeves. Like, you need to sleeve all card games. There are people who say this. I don't know if they're lying or delusional, but they are very wrong. My copy of Race for the Galaxy has been played over 150 times, and it has never been sleeved, and it's fine. Anyway. Mark, <laughs> sleeving pre- prevents pregnancy. I think that needs to be where we stop. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. Just don't tell me what you talk about. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.